Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Mallory Ortberg, also known as Dear Prudence. With me in the studio today is someone very near and dear to my heart. But first, I need to talk to you about an issue that has been weighing on me for weeks. Um, Every once in a while, a, a commercial will distress me so profoundly that I need to go on the radio to talk about it. Um, in the age of Hulu and other streaming devices, I feel like we all just watch the same five commercials every day for months on end. It's a very different relationship than I used to have with commercials. Now I feel like I get to know them intimately. I feel like we're dating. I feel like I get a very intense relationship with two or three commercials for months on end. Um, and then when they leave, I don't really know what to do with myself. Uh, and the ones that I've been thinking a lot about lately are, are those fucking Charmin ads for the toilet paper, and it's a family of bears that talk about nothing but taking a shit. I mean, this is a family that wherever they go, whether they're at work, applying for a job, visiting grandma, all they can think about um, is taking a shit. And, and it upsets me so much, mostly because someone just explained to me, I just got this. Because, like, why would you choose a family of self-aware bears to sell toilet paper? It's a reference to the expression does a bear shit in the woods. And that made me so furious because that's such a stupid pun. And I'm so angry that I didn't get it immediately. Um, And it just, there's nothing I can do about it now. And and it's just upsetting on so many levels. Like they're all nude. They're completely nude. And yet they're, they're visibly worried about like not thoroughly wiping their asses, but it's like, clearly you would know you're a nude bear. Uh, They also don't have visible anuses, which, again, is not like a sentence I ever imagined myself complaining about. Uh, And I feel uncomfortable doing this at the top of the show. Sorry, everyone, if you were listening to this on your lunch break. But like if you are going to force me into a world where a family of nude bears is constantly talking about their fear of skid marks um, and you often show me the animated bears asses and there is not an anus like how how am I not supposed to think about this? Like, nothing about this world feels consistent. Um, I, I feel worried about them and their health and safety, that this is the only topic of conversation. I feel uncomfortably, like, brought into the physical reality of these cartoon bears. And I just resent it on every level. I miss the, like, quilted northern ads where it was just the weird old ladies who would talk a lot about the like vicarious pleasure other people would get from using their toilet paper. I long for those genteel days. Uh, I'm upset by the Charmin bears. I'm upset by the inconsistency of their physical reality. Uh, I've upset myself again talking about it and I I just want it to stop. I I think it's a bad mascot and if someone out there is listening please change these ads or at least make it so that I don't have to watch them uh, when I want to rewatch old episodes of Community. Uh, it's it's very difficult and painful for me. And on that note, and with the sincerest of apologies from me, I would like to welcome my guest, Zach Turner. Zach Turner is my brother-in-law, and I love him. He is also a sales manager who works in tech and lives in San Francisco with my sister, who he married. Zach, welcome to the show. 
Mallory, thank you so much. I'm glad now that my introduction gets to be associated with the Charmin Bears. I'm so sorry. I've just been thinking about that for weeks on end. It's been so distressing. And somehow finding out that it was related to the expression, does a bear shit in the woods, just pushed me over the edge in terms of absolute incoherent rage. No, I, I totally understand that. As, as you say, though, time moves forward. It does. And advertisements for bathroom tissue is trying to move forward and changing. Zach, I'm so glad that you're here. I, I love you so much. I love you so much too, Mal. This is really fun. I, I think that you know this, but you're my favorite of all the family members, even Laura, your sister who I married. I mean, you're my favorite too, and I didn't even marry you. That's true. Um, and now here we are giving advice. And this is so fun. Listeners, I wish you you knew how often Zach had asked to be on the show and that, that he came today with like a printout of all the questions and little notes he's written in the corner, just like warms the cockles of my heart. So I've tried to select questions that I felt like would be particularly suited to your life experience, especially as like a manager and like a person with a lot of professional experience. Um, because I have spent the last couple of years now working on my couch. And so I've sort of lost the common touch of dealing with coworkers on a daily basis. And I sometimes forget the stark reality. It can be the best part about working and the worst part about working. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad to have you on the show. Uh, I'd love to dive right into our questions. And would you be so good as to read the very first letter? I would be thrilled to. Dear Prudence, I'm a recent college graduate who has moved home for a few months until I start my full-time job in the fall. While in college, I put on some pounds and am now slightly overweight. My mother was a yo-yo dieter for my entire life until this year she was able to successfully get down and stay at her goal weight. I'm very proud of her, but now I'm the subject of her scrutiny. I know that if I lost 20 pounds, I'd be much healthier and I'm trying to eat better and exercise more frequently. But she makes me feel horrible about myself because of my weight in just about every interaction we have. I'll catch her looking at me in apparent disgust, and she constantly comments on every food choice I make, even seemingly healthy ones. I ordered light salad dressing one time, and she told me I would never lose the weight if I kept making choices like that. While I know that losing weight would make me healthier and look better, I am not ashamed with how I look, at least until I am around her and constantly and her constant reminders about my weight. I've gotten to the point where I resent her and try to keep our interactions to a minimum for the sake of my self-esteem. She is very sensitive to any sort of criticism, and when I've brought it up to her before, she says that she is only concerned about my health and happiness. Probably true, but she is going about it poorly. What do you suggest I do to get her to ease off of me and at least limit the weight loss suggestions to only every other conversation? Ooh. This one I read and I was like, oh, oh, is she? Is your mother very sensitive to any sort of criticism? Because how uh, how rich is that? Crit she's sensitive to the criticism. She's the criticizer. And right. She's sensitive to getting criticism about her criticism. That was uh, wild. This one, I, I don't know why this one left out to me so much, um, but it just seemed like such a great example of like how shame and constant criticism are actually not super effective weight loss tactics. And this is just like, man, if anybody is listening to this and like sees themselves in it, like, please reconsider your choices. Like, this is so clearly not helpful. Uh, this is not kind. This has nothing to do with health and happiness. Like, this is, um, this is, this is just awful. Like, this is just constant. Yeah, no, it, it it feels really messed up. And I did underline that piece about her being sensitive to criticism where that that shouldn't be the hurdle that prevents this writer from from having the conversation with her mom. But I, I think there are a few different layers to this. And, and ultimately, I think some of what I sense 
is that her mom is the one that wants her to lose the weight and she's pretty comfortable and okay with with where she's at although she you know says like oh it could be better to to lose some weight but it's not necessarily like a big driver for her so it's almost not that she wants to lose the weight to get her mom off the back it's it, it's that she wants to have a hard conversation with her mom so that her mom you know cuts down on her criticism yeah i mean this clearly has a lot to do with the mom's own issues right like mm-hmm. this this is a person who has spent their her whole life struggling with her own weight and her own self-acceptance and has very recently sort of achieved a weight loss goal. And now that she's done that, uh, you know, but has clearly not resolved all the sort of anxiety and possible self-loathing and now needs a new target for that because she's not like at peace with herself and the nearest person for that is her daughter. And I, I just want to throw this out there, too, like. You know, it's called the freshman 15 for a reason. We're not talking about like an issue where like you your health is at risk. Like this is 20 pounds, which I that's great if your goal is to lose it. But it's also not at all unusual. They call it the freshman 15 for a reason. Like this is not not that there would be an amount of weight where this behavior would be okay, But I think especially because this is such a relatively in the long run small issue, it's it's even more clear to me that this is so much more about your mother than it is about you. And so please don't feel like, oh, I know she's kind of right because she's kind of not like that's that's actually not there. There's not an amount of weight where this behavior would be OK. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think you and I are both in agreement that this is a conversation that needs to happen. Um, do you think this is the sort of thing where you wait until your mom brings it up again? Or do you have a sort of like sit down, come to Jesus, mom, you got to knock this off? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I think I think she needs to have the conversation before her mom criticizes her again. I think if you do that in a criticism moment, it, it can lead to more escalated emotions. Um, I, I actually resonate with this because I've I've been in a similar position with her with my own weight, with my own body and my own diets. Um, and I've had folks that maybe have been more critical about, about food um, in my life or about my weight. And I think that a lot of it is going to have to be like, what does she really want and not what does her mom want? Like that's that's separate from kind of the harder conversation with with her mom. But I also think like, hey, mom, this is my plan. This is what I want. This is what I feel comfortable with. And this is what I need from you. Maybe it's to stop bringing these things up or maybe it's like, hey, you've controlled your own diet and your own weight. That doesn't mean that you get to control and, and impact my own weight. I think that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I I think let go of the fact that your mom's really sensitive to criticism because that's just her problem to deal with. This is really appropriate for you to push back on. I'm also really glad that you're only home for another couple of months until you can start your own job in the fall. I think it will be good for you to not live with her. Um, And I think also your strategy of minimizing interactions with her is a good one. Um, If she can't keep her comments to herself about what you're eating, um, then, then I, 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 I too would go spend time with other people, um, and and that whole thing about how she says she's only concerned about your health and happiness, and you say that's probably true. I actually don't think that's true. Um, I don't think that it improves anyone's health and happiness to hear things like, you know, if you keep getting light salad dressing, you're never going to be like a worthwhile person. You'll, you'll, like that's she's saying objectively unkind things constantly, regardless of what you eat, right? Like there's no choice you can make that is healthy enough for her to just not make a comment. So I think you can actually go ahead and call bullshit on that one. And I think that the thing you get to ask of your mom is just, I need you to stop making comments on the things that I eat. Um, I 
like have my own health and well-being uh, at the forefront of my mind. I'm making good choices for myself. Uh, I need you to trust that. Um, when you make constant comments about what I eat, I feel scrutinized. I feel like objectified. I feel put down. I feel surveilled. It's irritating and it's unhelpful and you need to stop. And if you can't, I'm not going to spend time eating with you. Um, and you need to ask yourself why you are incapable of like passing comment on my food choices. Um, and, and I think that's a really fair limit to draw. And if she can't do that, like, that's not hard. I, I eat out with people all the time and I, I really limit my choices to what I say about their food other than like, that looks good. Can I have a bite? Um, that's kind of all you need to say. Like, you're doing great. There's nothing wrong with you. Uh, your mom is being an asshole. Uh, she is not concerned about your health and well-being. She's trying to control and micromanage you. And she's being an asshole about it. And it sucks. Um, so, yeah. But eat me. Come, come, call me. I will go out to eat with you. We will have something delicious and wholesome, and I will just praise you to the skies. Food is good. Food is good. Mm -hmm. Like, and you got to eat every day. Like, I can't imagine somebody every time I eat is just like a jerk about it. I'd be, I'd be curious if this mom, her mom, when she was yo-yoing back and forth with her diets, like if she had somebody in her life that was criticizing and chipping away, or maybe that was even just a voice in her head that was kind of criticizing herself that now she's, now that she's kind of right. sorted out her own weight stuff, that she's just kind of expelling that on her, right. her daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Like there is a degree to which probably a lot of this just comes from her own anxieties, but like she is a grown woman. She should go to a therapist or figure it out like in her food journal or something. This is not something to exercise on your kid. Um, and yeah, so letter writer, like your question is just, what do you suggest I do to get her to ease off me? You tell her to stop. And if she doesn't stop, you limit the time that you're around her. Unfortunately, like she... She is not doing this for the sake of your well-being. She knows that. She knows that this is compulsive and nonstop, and uh, you just need to tell her that you're not going to put up with it anymore. Um, and that's going to be hard, especially uh, if you already feel guilty uh, about wanting to lose 20 pounds, which, again, I would just encourage you to, like, try to let go of some of that. Like, you're taking care of yourself. You're doing great. Um, and your mom does not have the right to, like, yell at you about your salad dressing. Woof. All right. Well, good luck. Get that job. Get out of there. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into the next one. Dear Prudence, I've been dating a wonderful man for the past three years now. We did long distance for a while, and now he is moving to another state with me, and we are moving in together. He's caring, faithful, honest, and makes me feel good every day. Everything is great except for one thing. He's extremely introverted, and I am not. In our relationship with one another, that's never really been a problem. When we're together, he talks a lot, and he's really happy. I think that's because he's comfortable around me, and we love each other. However, I have groups of friends that I really care for, and it's been so difficult to get him into that part of my life because he's really uncomfortable with people he doesn't know. I'll bring him to a bar or to a dinner with me and my friends, and he'll really just sit there in silence. He doesn't make an effort to talk to them, and when people talk to him, his responses are brief, and it's hard to keep the conversation going. It's difficult because I feel like he's uncomfortable even though he doesn't say it, and at the same time, I feel uncomfortable because when I talk to my friends, I feel like I'm ignoring him. It's reaching a point where I'd rather go out with my friends without him, but I don't want to hurt his feelings saying that. I know he's had a hard time growing up because he had a speech impediment as a child and was homeschooled most of his life. So I know that he can have issues with social interactions and is much more introverted than I am. Now that we're a couple of months away from moving in together, I'm really worried this will negatively affect our relationship. Man, introversion, extroversion, 
opposites attract. I, I can resonate with this one because I'm an introvert, Mallory. You are. You you have mentioned this once or twice. And, and you know, when I think about introversion, it's really just where do you get your energy, right? It's do you get your energy from being with people or do you get your energy from being alone? And one of the things that she mentioned about kind of when it's just the two of them is that, you know, he's really happy and he talks a lot. And a lot of times introverts, like when they are with somebody that they really know well, that's when they really can open up. Um, but yeah, this is this is a tricky one. And it's about to get real with them moving in together in a different state. Yeah. And I'm a little, maybe this is just something that, that naturally arises from spending a lot of time on the internet. But I feel like there's often this sort of magical thinking uh, and this like, uh, I feel like people talk a lot about introversion and extroversion. Mm. And the kind of tone is like, Introverts are magical, lonely wanderers on the earth, um, and extroverts are boorish people that talk to you too much at parties. And if I identify myself as an introvert, what that means is I should never be asked to meet someone in the middle. Um, I should always be left alone to, like, sit with a candle in a room, um, and I should never be asked to, like, make an effort. And I know that that's not what this guy is necessarily saying. I just feel like I do see that mindset fairly often, and I'm a little... I, I think that that's a little too pat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always have that in mind when I hear someone say, well, they're an introvert, so therefore, like, they shouldn't have to do this part of human social interaction. I'm like, mm. I, I don't think I don't think that expression of your personality is an excuse for a lack of social effort mm-hmm. or social skills. Um, I think I am an introvert. I do get energy from being alone. But that often surprises people because I have a job where I manage people. And I'm often in front of you know, customers talking and interacting. And it takes energy out of me. But also, I've, I've worked on those skills. I agree. I think we kind of create a dichotomy that almost makes it too, too simple. Um, and I think to your point of, of figuring out ways to kind of encourage him to not just sit in a room with a candle and like say, hey, I'm an introvert. This is how I'm going to be, is to figure out how can we scope this down and make it easier for him to get started. Right. It could be too much to go into a large group setting where it's overwhelming. But if you can figure out like a couple ways that I think you could potentially scope it down is figure out like smaller group settings, maybe do something. I think in general, this might even be something that guys often do, but do a social thing that has an activity, Mm -hmm. that has something for an introvert to do and not just sit and talk the whole time. But then also I think that there could be ways that she could encourage him on a person to get to know a little bit more or ways that he could he could cultivate like a little bit better conversation. Like, hey, when people do ask you questions, you need to spend a little bit more time unpacking and, and articulating yourself a little bit more. I've heard it said that in conversations, there's three different layers. There's it's easiest in a shallow layer to talk about other people. Mm-hmm. Then you can the next layer is talking about events. And the third layer, the deeper layer is talking about ideas. And I work with a bunch of software engineers, and oftentimes, you know, they might fit that traditional introvert mode, not be as polished socially, um, but encouraging them to think about, hey, have conversations with people about people and then work your way towards events. And then once you can get really comfortable with people, being able to open up about ideas, that's like a really cool way to, I think, break down conversations. Yeah. And and I like that. I do like the idea of, no, you should not just like demand that he instantly become incredibly comfortable with talking to a ton of people at parties. Like that's not the solution either. But I also worry a little bit that the letter writer is thinking, because my boyfriend is an introvert, he can't do these things or shouldn't ever, we shouldn't ever try. It won't ever get better. And I don't think that that's the case. Like the bit about growing up with a speech impediment and being homeschooled, um, it's a little unclear to me, like if like 
is he extremely anxious about talking to people as a result of this? Like, is there some level of like, do you believe that he has like anxiety or an issue or some sort of trauma around this? Or like that he's disclosed to you? Or do you just feel like, oh, maybe that's why? Because if it's, you know, if it's that he said, yeah, it makes it really hard for me to talk to people because of that. I'm always afraid that my speech impediment might return or I, I just it reminds me of those anxious moments. Um, then that's really worth like addressing and accommodating and kind of checking through like, well, what makes it easier? Is it easier if we just have one person over at a time for dinner at the house and like you can get to know them more one on one like you did with me? Or are you just kind of filling in the blanks because you don't know, in which case maybe, you know, because some people did grow up with a speech impediment and were homeschooled, but don't necessarily feel like that's going to influence their future social interaction. So that's something I think to talk about with him. Um, and, and I think you also should just say in general, like, uh, I love you. I love our connections. I, I, I know you're not necessarily going to love going to parties every weekend, maybe the way that I do. And that's OK. But it's really important to me to feel like you get to know some of my friends better. And, and that's a real goal of mine. I would love to feel like um, when we get together, you guys can kind of have conversations that don't require me because I just want you to know the people that I love. Um, and to sort of ask for, like, ask both, hey, do you think you'd be willing to make a little more of an effort when we do spend time together? And then also, what's easier for you? Um, and to kind of work together on that. Because you do want to help him. You know, you don't want to make demands of him, but you also don't want to say, well, he's an introvert, so it'll just always be this way. And I think, uh, Zach, I like your idea of kind of figuring out maybe there's an activity you guys can do. Because once he does get to know them, they will no longer be people he's uncomfortable around, right? And like, even if it just is one or two people, um, once he's got one or two sort of rapports established with them, it'll get easier. Yeah. And that will be good. I, I think finding those ways to meet in the middle are going to be helpful. Yes. Offer him help, offer support, find out what would be a, a more kind of low pressure environment that he could sort of feel more comfortable in. But also, like, if you guys are going out with friends and you want to talk to your friends and not kind of stay glued to his side the whole time, that's OK. You're not ignoring him. Um, he is a grown man. And this is an area of life where he's going to need to develop and grow. And sometimes that might be a little uncomfortable, but like, he can handle that. He can handle be a little, you know, he's been an introvert his whole life. He can probably deal with, you know, some silences in the conversation. So please don't feel like unless you are sitting next to him being the cruise director of his conversation, you're being a bad girlfriend. If you want to go catch up with your friend across the room for like 20 minutes and then, you know, check in with him and wave and make sure he's doing all right. You can do that, and that does not mean you are abandoning him. And that that's too much stress and pressure to put on yourself to right. have to be that cruise director. I, I was just thinking like, it could be good to find ways to meet in the middle where you mentioned you find yourself rather going out with your friends without him. Maybe you should do that sometimes. Or maybe you yeah, go out both. together and then he leaves early and you stay out with your friends. I don't think you need to feel guilty about that. But I think there's ways to find find a medium ground there. Like, Mallory, you're taking Laura for a weekend this coming weekend. As an introvert, I'm thrilled thinking about the you time I'll be able to have. You love those weekends. Exactly. You just get to hang out. <laughs> and, and we have those maybe every every other month. Yeah. Um, and I think the last piece, too, and this is just really important for the move, is if you guys are moving into a different state, it's going to be really important for him to develop other friendships and not have his entire relationship um, energy tied up in just yours. Yeah. Like, that is going to be something that he'll need to cultivate. And if he's got some friends with – or if you have some friends that can help that, all the better. 
Yeah. No, and I, I think this is really good. You say he's, like, caring and honest, makes you feel good. It doesn't sound like he's just, like, uninterested in getting to know other people. So I think if you guys have these conversations and try to meet one another halfway, there's a really good chance that things will improve. Um, and then you can also figure out, like, if you want to go out with your friends sometimes without him, that might be great for the both of you. That's not bad. Indeed. All right. I, I'm really excited for you to to read this next one because this is where we really start getting into some of the good work ones. And I have, yeah, this one is wild. This one is interesting. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and get on to the next one. Dear Prudence, when my boss left her position, she went a little crazy. While we had previously shared a good working relationship and a friendship, she became incensed that I told my organization that I would be taking over uh, for her as an interim after she left. The news had already been announced in the office, and it wasn't a lie or jumping the gun to tell people. It was a big move for me, and again, it was already out. Regardless, she was angry and lashed out at me and about me all over the workplace. The way she acted out and some of the things I found out after she moved to her new job really left a sour taste in my mouth. This is a person who previously said that she thought of me as a daughter and her best friend and offered to officiate my wedding. I live in a very small town, and burning this bridge entirely is not an option. We will definitely have to work together. But I want nothing to do with her. I would like to uninvite her to my very small out-of-town wedding and end our friendship. But this is a person with a tenuous at best relationship with boundaries, and I do not want her to hurt my chances with this job permanently. This feels like a plot line on the TV show My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And actually, I think it's just Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, not My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And now it's Crazy Ex-Boss. Yeah, no, 100%. The subject line of this, by the way, is not your damn daughter, which I really liked. Like, there's a real just, like, primal moment of childhood rebellion in here. Um, Can you think of a way to uninvite someone to your wedding but maintain a good professional relationship? It's it's a tough needle to thread. That That is a very, very thin, thin thread. I... I don't know if I have the magic answer. I, 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 number one, just want to say, like, good on you for raising your hand after she left and saying, hey, I can grow into this role. I can help kind of fill this gap when she leaves. Um, So I just want to say, like, good on you for doing that. Her reaction to that is completely and utterly inappropriate. And, you know, you kind of explain and couch things like that you tried to kind of control the communication so that it didn't come out too early or too quickly, but it did because people needed to kind of move on. And I think there is something that's deeply personal, and I've felt this when I've left jobs, where you feel really invested in whoever's going to fill your spot and sometimes can have a lot of insecurity around that. So it's clear that there's a lot of insecurity. There's a lot of emotion that's tied up in her leaving and moving into another role or another another company. Um and you taking that on in, in replacement of her. So I think that helps to just have some empathy where, of course, she's going to feel feel a little bit bummed out on being replaced. Um, and it's unfortunate that it seems like the balance of that relationship, of that close kind of daughter-like, best friend-like relationship was based on a power of her being your boss rather right. than her leaving and then you guys more being equals in terms of how she sees you as a peer and a, and a friend. Yeah, so I, I guess I feel like... I, I'm wondering if, first of all, I'm wondering if, would she even want to come to your wedding? Like, is there a chance that she is so angry that she just won't attend? That might work out great. But then do you really want to take that chance, right? Like, if she has behaved so irrationally in the last couple of weeks or months, maybe she would do something outrageous, like show up at the wedding and want to fight about the job stuff. 
So my thought is, your wedding is small and it's out of town. I feel like you you do have to uninvite her because if there's even a 5% chance that she's going to show up and like spend the weekend in the same bed and breakfast as you and like attend your rehearsal dinner and get drunk and yell at you, like if there's even a chance that she will do those things, this is not like a 500-person wedding in your hometown where you can just kind of let her blend into the crowd or ask like have someone ask her to leave. Like you do, I think need to at least consider uninviting her. Um, and my thought there is like you you're, you're, you don't want her to you don't want to hurt your chances with the job permanently. I'm kind of wondering if your chances are already as bad as they can get. Like she already clearly is like, you know, speaking badly of you all over town because you inherited her job. Is there much of a working relationship to preserve? Like, could you keep her from continuing to say these things about you if you let her come to your wedding? Would that actually do any good? I'm not sure. Can you see a way where, like, they kind of paper over this and like can she just draw the line with the friendship but then be friendly and polite if she runs into her professionally like is that possible it's hard and i mean i you and i don't know how small this town is and she mentioned she worked in a volunteer kind of nonprofit space mm-hmm. so it certainly probably is going to be a small circle of of people in that industry in this area yeah, it's funny. I, I work in tech in San Francisco, and I still feel like it's a really small community where your reputation does precede you. Um, so to think about that in a small town in a, in a nonprofit space could, could make sense. I think, I think honestly what she needs to do is she's kind of managing this tension of, frankly, if it was a bigger pond, she'd probably just cut it off and hope to never see her again. Right. But because she knows it's a small enough pond, she's going to see her. I think she just needs to have a really hard conversation and listen and ask and understand like, hey, what is going on? Why are you feeling this way? How can we work through this for the future of us kind of being in a similar space? How can I help kind of take the baton from you and not take that baton and, and discount your work in what you've done? but kind of celebrate the work that you've done and how far you've taken this organization and then help carry it forward in a way that's unique and different right. um, from, from you. I think it just needs to be a conversation and almost framing it as like the future of where we could go. Just And this is more on the professional side. Right. I think in terms of the wedding, after having that hard conversation, if it doesn't go well, you can be like, hey, it seems like this probably doesn't make sense for you to come to my wedding. Mm-hmm. Hope that there's some agreement there. And then you both kind of agree to uninvite this yep. person. Yep. Um, but I think if you have that hard conversation and then like talk about the wedding, if if it's that she says, hey, I really do want to work at this and I do want to figure this out, uh, maybe she can be vulnerable and, and open to, to changing. Yeah. And then maybe you do let her continue going to the wedding. But I do fear, I'm, I'm watching, I'm picturing uh, Jim and Pam's wedding and Michael Scott where mm-hmm. he was just everywhere in yeah. that wedding weekend. Like it was all about him and I could see this that former happening. boss doing that. You yeah. don't want you don't want Michael Scott at your wedding. Yeah, and and I would say too like hopefully the company that now employs you in that position knows that you are doing your best to work professionally and if there's anyone you can sort of enlist to say like hey, my goal is to maintain like a friendly professional relationship with former boss. Um do you have any advice on how to help me with that? Like, just to kind of let them know that this is going on in case, like, the things that she's saying do start to come back, like, just to protect yourself. Um, 
But I do think that that's a good idea, both for the sake of the fact that you're apparently going to have to continue working together in some capacity in the future, and also for the sake of the, like, long relationship you did share. And even if she reacts to it badly, like, the goal is clearly not to preserve that closeness that you once had. Like, that's pretty obviously gone. Um, But for the sake of what you guys used to have to say, like... um, I, I, you're clearly very deeply troubled by the fact that I've taken on this job. Uh, I'm not sure what I have done to upset you so greatly. I would love to be able to be at least like uh, collegial with one another. Do you think we can do that? And if so, what do you want that to look like? And if she responds just totally banana pants, like, yeah, then I think you can say, okay, well, um, let's keep our contact to a minimum and I wish you the best and sort of respond to her outrageousness with calmness. Um, And if she is able to sort of calm down, possibly apologize, or at the very least sort of say, uh, yeah, I I was really upset, but I I think I can rein it in in the future, then you can sort of stay polite and distant with her. But man, yeah, I really hope she does not still want to come to your wedding. Well, and there's some value for her, too, to save face if it's a small town and a small community for this former boss to actually, like, admit, like, hey, I do want to work at this because we're still going to be working together. Like... I would say it's a big red flag for wherever she's going next. Right. Um, I'm just so confused, too. Like, unless the letter writer took out, like, a skywriter the day the boss left to just be like, I'm the boss now. The previous administration sucked. Um, I just can't understand that response. But I mean, maybe there's something we're not seeing. Like, maybe her boss was fired. Right. Like, when my boss left her position. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's a possibility. Although she sure got another one very quickly. Right. Yeah. It is possible she got pushed out and then like very quickly landed a backup job, um, which would certainly add a a layer. But even then, like even if you got fired, it's not your friend's fault that they became there's no there's kind of nothing the letter writer could have done short of like orchestrating her boss's firing and then stealing her job and like talking shit about her behind her back that would have justified. Oh, 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 man. I mean, take, take the higher ground. Uh, and then based on her reaction, you can kind of make the call on on the wedding. And I think if it's the wrong reaction, you totally have justification for that. I think so, too. Yeah. And I'm just sorry. It's really sad when somebody that says that they think of you as family uh, sort of reveals that uh, they apparently feel like being family means they can treat you very, very badly um, and over like very little justification. All right. So good luck with that one. I hope your wedding is attended only by people who wish you well. Let's jump into the next one. Dear Prudence, I'm in a happy and healthy relationship with a person I see a real future with. He's sincere and sweet, smart, so funny, and the kind of person you can't help but trust despite whatever baggage you're bringing to the table. I really love him. There are definite challenges. We're long distance right now. The idea of tying myself financially to another person is sort of terrifying. But to be honest, what trips me up the most is the question of faith. I grew up non-denominational Christian, and while as an adult I swing much more liberal, I still identify this way. I find this to be a central and important part of my identity, and the community I've built as well as my whole family, who still are all very devout, are very important to me. Faith communities really do seem to have their own culture or language. Aside from my faith being important to me on an individual level, I've also loved being a part of the community offered through my church. My partner is generally apathetic about faith. He doesn't identify as an atheist as much as he identifies as shrug. He's supportive of me and not at all antagonistic, and I feel the same way, although I think his apathy makes this less of a crisis for him. I think what nags at me is not that he doesn't share my faith, but just that I find it hard to find examples of thriving families and relationships that are interfaith, or specifically Protestant and apathetic atheists. 
I've never been much of a pioneer. I really like to hear and learn from others' experiences. It scares me to feel alone. I know many Christians in the church have a gut reaction to want to pray for women who are seen attending church without their husbands. I'm not saying that this is the only way people feel, just that that sometimes seems to be the loudest reaction. Am I wrong? Are there other Protestants digging into community alongside apathetic partners? Outside the church, it can seem more amorphous and understandable to come down on different sides of God and the church and faith in general. But within it, I fear that I would lose the ability to access this particular denomination's community. I hope this isn't true, but I'm wondering, is it? Are we doomed as a couple? What does it look like to be interfaith? Are there resources where people are talking about this? How are people doing it? Is it a roadblock? Am I alone in wanting to have my communion and eat it too? Get it? That was, that was a clever ending. Oh my gosh. That was, I understood why they couldn't resist. Um, There's a lot going in this one too. I know. No, and this one felt like very deeply felt. It's something they're clearly like uh, trying to think through. And I just kind of admire the the compassion uh, and understanding that this person is bringing to bear, as well as the sort of just very real question of what can this look like? Do other people go through this? How can I do this well? Um, how can I respect my partner's beliefs uh, while also trying to connect on a really profound level together? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to jump in and just say to the question, are we doomed? The answer is no. Like, I, I don't think you need to I don't think you need to have kind of, you don't need to project it out and project everybody else to that. I think you guys get to decide that. And I actually think in terms of kind of answering that question, like I think a lot of relationships are about having things in common. And oftentimes it can be really helpful to share kind of the faith and um, kind of belief in in religion that is somewhat in common. It's not always going to be 100% there. But I think the, the question is, like if you guys don't have the faith component in common, what are the other things that you do have in common? And, and is there is there a surplus of that that can make up for the lack of maybe having being on the same page um, from a faith standpoint? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot. I, I don't either want to be like overly reassuring of like, mm-hmm. hey, as long as you love each other, no difference is insurmountable or sort of uh, adding to the doom and gloom of unless you and your partner can check a certain number of boxes on the checklist of like compatible worldviews, you cannot love one another. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but it seems more like your question letter writer was about both are other people doing this? Um, What can it look like? How can I find out more about it? Um, Yes. The answer to that question is yes. Interfaith marriages do exist. And I use the phrase interfaith. Sometimes people call it mixed marriages, although that gets confused because there's a lot of other things that can be mixed in a marriage. Um, And interfaith maybe doesn't always uh, encapsulate the fact that atheism and agnosticism are are a part of those interfaith marriages, even though they don't involve having a particular religious faith. Um, Yes, it happens. Uh, I, I feel like anecdotally, I hear often that Divorce rates are higher for interfaith marriage, but not every interfaith couple gets divorced. Um, I don't think that it's necessarily like a a harbinger of doom. Um, But yes, I I encourage you to seek out other interfaith couples, not even necessarily to like go to bingo night or whatever. But um, honestly, if you just Google like interfaith marriage, there are books, there are websites, uh, and you can find whatever flavor of interfaith you yourself are experiencing. I think probably in the United States, Protestants are very common. Uh, Relaxed atheists are also very common. I, I don't think this is like a wildly unusual usual combination. Um, 
so yeah, I would encourage you to do a little of that research, which can start very simply through simply Googling interfaith couples. Um, there may be interfaith organizations in your community that you can get in touch with. And this may have more to do with putting your own mind at ease rather than sort of finding something for you and your partner to do together. Because my guess is if he's sort of apathetic about the whole thing, he's not going to get really fired up about being part of an interfaith couple like as a as a part of your community. But yeah, if, if you want that, I think you should totally look that up. And, and to add to that, uh, a woman that I worked with at a organization before, the, the tech company that I work for, um, named her name is Jessica Jackley, and she's in an interfaith uh, marriage with um, a writer named Reza Aslan. And Reza is uh, Muslim and Jessica is evangelical Christian, and they have two boys and they're raising them to be um, kind of an interfaith family. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that two th- two kind of call-outs of resources from them, they have a book called Being Both, um, which is a great kind of example of kind of their story of their marriage and their philosophy on how they're approaching that. And one of the things that I think can be really helpful about having parents that maybe aren't in different places is, or having a couple that's in different places, it can inspire a deeper understanding of beliefs and faiths and mm-hmm. what what you really hold rather than just kind of group think and taking on whatever whatever it is that you you both agree on and I think love can transcend those kinds of differences and I think we're probably seeing that increasingly um, in the 21st century um, but I also would say like there's also a TED talk that they did too um, at TED Stanford so that could be like a nice little 20 minute way to get an intro to the book before purchasing it um, but I respect Jessica a ton and she's definitely worth taking a look at um, but it also seems like it's not so much about you both having two different religious beliefs. It's almost you having religious beliefs and your um, partner not having religious beliefs. So, so that's a little bit different, I think, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Because I think what I've here is a lot of apathy and him not kind of falling down on any place. So I think one thing that I would just caution you on is if you do project things out and if you do see yourself you know, staying with this person, getting married and all those things. You need to choose that assuming that he will stay in the exact religious beliefs that he has now. Zach, I think that's so helpful. And I think, too, um, like marriages are already difficult. And then when you add uh, being interfaith to it, it's it's an added layer of difficulty. Um, but I think the probably the best way to approach it um, is to really consider, can you see your partner's apathetic atheism not as a drawback that you are willing to overlook, but a part of what makes him the person that you fell in love with? Um, And if you can find your way to an understanding of your own faith that is meaningful um, and your partner's wholeness as a person that is meaningful, that does not try to uh, obscure the differences between you, um, but that also uh, does not sort of hold out hope that maybe they won't matter. I mean, um, yeah, like, like like you said, like just assume this is who he is and is always going to be and ask yourself, am I comfortable with that? Will I feel like I can still share my thoughts and f- feelings about faith with him and he'll listen? Uh, or do I feel like I'm going to have to sort of develop that part of my life without him? And if so, does that make me feel okay or does that make me feel lonely? If we did have kids, um, how would we approach raising them? Um, would he feel a little bit more strongly if the kids started coming home and talking about church and he realized like, oh, I actually want to communicate my beliefs to them too. Because like 
he's apathetic, but that doesn't mean he has no beliefs, right? Like he still has values and a worldview and, and, and things that he thinks are important to communicate. So if children are something that you guys are considering that, that's, again, doesn't mean you need to break up, but it's it's worth thinking about. And yeah, just to think, this is who he is. This is not a drawback. This isn't like, oh, this is my partner. Wouldn't it be great if he were a member of my faith, but he's not, so I'm willing to take him as is. Um, I, I think if you can't think of like my wonderful, apathetic, atheist partner, and this is what makes him the person I love, um, and I am okay, I'm like more than okay with that. I can celebrate that. Um, if somebody is snarky about it with me at church, um, I can really push back against that. Um, if you can do that, if you can see your way to that, then then I think, you know, you can proceed. And if you can't, that is a legitimate difference that, like, is understandable if you guys eventually decide you couldn't make it work. Um, that is okay, too. Um, so I, I just think uh, mostly to check in with one another often um, and to do as much research as you can. Um, and just sort of figure out, is this something that I can do well? Um, and to to really trust your partner and be honest and be willing to have difficult conversations. Um, but yes, I do know, uh, actually, I'm very, very close with a couple um, where uh, one of the partners in question converted to Christianity uh, kind of in the middle of their marriage. Very surprisingly, they were not planning on doing it. And the other partner is, uh, like your partner, a pretty relaxed atheist. Um, and it was certainly like a surprise and an adjustment. And at least thus far, it's been about two years now. Um, they're very happy together. Like it's pretty clear that they're different <laughs> there. Um, they talk about it. They're open with one another. Neither one of them thinks the other is, you know, dumb or deluded or misguided or going to hell or an idiot. Um even privately or like with nicer words than that. Like they both really understand that life is strange and we all come to different understandings uh, of things at various times in our life based on our experience. And um, so at least anecdotally, they seem very happily married. They seem very much in love. They seem very close. They honor and respect and share with one another. And that's pretty cool. So uh, that's at least an anecdote of one, but they are also not dead yet. So they might get divorced tomorrow and then I would have to retract my statement. Uh, so... For whatever that's worth, you know, good luck. I think this is worth considering and thinking about. I think it's good that you are asking these questions. Good luck. All right, back to work. Back to work. A little bit lighter. This one's, this one's fun. Dear Prudence, my department recently hired a very nice employee whose personal habits are, to say the least, less than fastidious. They have been observed picking their nose, coughing directly onto our communal keyboards, walking around in bare feet, eating at their desk, and so forth. This person tends not to take care of themselves, and as a result is unwell more often than not. The upshot of both of these things is that almost every single member of our department has been off sick at some point since this new coworker started, almost to the exact week. The new person gets sick, and we all follow. This has been going on for a few months now. We've tried general department memos about keeping ourselves healthy over the winter, planting cash, uh, planting a variety of things like hand sanitizer and tissues all over the office and requesting that everyone sanitize their desk when they leave the office at the end of the week. Nothing has stuck with this employee. As their direct supervisor, I certainly don't want to make them feel bad about themselves since it's none of my business how they handle their own health, but it's directly affecting our lives now as well as one coworker who had to miss a flight because of strep throat. Is there anything kind but firm we can do for this employee to get us all healthy again? 
sincerely stuck with the sniffles. I love the sentence. As their direct supervisor, it's none of my business how they handle their own health after explaining to us that this person's, like, very bad personal hygiene has directly affected everyone else's ability to get work done. I think that answered it right there with that sentence. Yeah, like, right? Zach, you're you're, a manager. No, I've actually had to have a conversation like this with somebody that reports to me. And, I mean, I think as the boss, you have to be constantly asking yourself, what hard conversation am I not having that I should be having? And I think this is a hard conversation um, that, you know, Mr. or Miss stuck with the sniffles. You just need to have. You just need to bite the bullet and do that. Um, I've gotten a really good framework for giving feedback or having conversations like this recently. And that's to make sure that you're caring personally while also challenging directly when you give feedback. So you need to make sure that you're caring well and also being direct and clear with them. And so I think you just really need to say like, hey, this is impacting everybody else in the office. You've already unpacked some of the evidence of what this person needs to do. It almost seems you guys are just beating around the bush and trying to hope that that person just picks up on the cues. It actually reminds me of my first job. Um, There was a guy in my office who was very similar to this person. I had to use his keyboard one time, and when I typed on the keyboard, there was just, like, smudges from grease. And as I typed, like, crumbs, like, popped up out of the keyboard. No, no, he didn't no. floss. Like, his coffee breath was terrible. But nobody had the courage to tell him that. Right. And I, I wish that as a 23-year-old in my first job that I had had some of that courage. I wasn't his direct manager. I was going to say, I wish his manager had had the courage because it was not your job. Exactly. Um, but, yeah, that seems really fair. Like, this is very clearly—these are not personal issues, like— as this guy's boss, yeah, you have to be the one who says, um, again, as you say, compassionately, don't be like, you're disgusting, you disgust me, I hate you, um, but say, uh, don't pick your nose at your desk, please don't cough, to, like, cover your mouth when you cough, uh, wear shoes at the office, the eating at the desk thing feels less relevant, but, like, if they're not um, disinfecting their desk at the end of the week, you can say that, like, as you know, we've made this announcement, you're not doing that, you need to start. Um, these are all very clear action items, as people like to say in offices. They fall within your direct purview uh, as his supervisor. Um, and and you don't even have to, I mean, in your mind, you can say, like, I think that's why such and such people have gotten strep throat. But you just can stick with, like, that's not, like, for the health of the office, we need to do all of these things and you're not doing them. And I need you to start doing them now. And if you don't, I will let you know. I'm going to hold you accountable. So if I see you, like, coughing on your keyboard, I'm going to tell you to cover your mouth. And if I see you walk into my office and you don't have shoes on, I'm going to say, go put your shoes on right now. Like, I think that's frankly about as kind as you need to be. This is not, like, again, this is a situation that calls for, like, basic garden variety kindness. But you don't have to, like, be overly gentle. This is really unacceptable office behavior. And if he showed up at an interview, like if he was interviewing for a job and he didn't have shoes on and he picked his nose and he coughed on the like his interviewer's hand, they would not hire him. Yeah. No, I mean, this This is one of those things where I think you might care too much in giving feedback, so you need to be more direct. Right. And this isn't as personal as like, oh, my friend sometimes has bad breath and I'm afraid to tell them. Because, of course, that does that, – that's a totally different situation. This is like bad behavior. Yeah. Um, that you just get to fix. It sounds like an interesting department. Like, is this a lab or something? Like, it seems very kind of communal and collaborative with sharing keyboards and equipment. I mean, if it is a lab, it's even more important to, like, (laughs) sanitize your desk. Like, if you guys are developing new medicines that I might be taking at some point, uh, please, you know, 
don't cough directly onto the keyboard. We, we have an open floor plan so everybody can see each other. Nobody has a closed door desk. And I have a very strict policy with my team that when people are sick, they're not to be in the office. Yeah. Because it does, like in our environment, it can lead to everybody getting sick. So you might even revisit kind of your your um, out-of-office policies yeah. as well. But be direct. No more communal emails. No more signs saying sanitize your hands. Call them in for a meeting. Say, I've noticed this issue. You're a great employee. I really like you. And this needs to change. Uh, and then, you know, stay on top of it until it gets better. All right. More, more, more work. Work and work and work and more work. Dear Prudence, I work in a nine-to-five office job in finance, but have recently discovered that what I would truly like to be in life is a social worker. I applied to a master's in social work program in my area, planning to take my classes at night beginning this fall and to graduate in about two years. Now, a big promotion at work has unexpectedly fallen into my lap. Can I accept the promotion, which comes with increased flexibility and pay, which I really need, and work on my master's program on my own time without letting my employer know? I know it wouldn't sound good to let them know that in the midst of being trained in my new role, I'm also actively working toward changing careers. If I don't ever tell them that I'm in school, what reason would I give when I eventually leave for my job for a position as a social worker? So one thing that's great about jobs is you don't have to give good reasons when you give notice. Like, if two years from now you get hired as a social worker, you don't have to, like, convince your current jobs, your your current bosses, that you have a good reason for leaving. You can just say, I have accepted an offer elsewhere. Here are my two weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this one's pretty easy. I think you should feel really good about getting that promotion and taking it, especially in what it's going to enable for having more flexibility for you to pursue your master's degree. Um, the thing that I think is, there's two things that I think are key, and that's kind of the timing as well as kind of who you owe. In terms of timing, I mean, if you're going to be doing your job after you get a promotion for two full years, I feel like they're getting enough value out of that promotion that you don't need to feel feel any, any worry about that. If you were going to leave in a month or two or maybe six months, like you might want to think about how you might approach this because it's a shorter runway of you accepting that promotion and then leaving with some intention on the sooner side. So I think if, you, if you've got two years of working nights or doing school at night and working during the day, go for it. Like, power to you. And, and in terms of kind of who you owe, it might depend upon being in the finance industry, but at least in tech, as a manager, I really believe in, like, caring about the long-term career plans for folks that work for me. So I'm making sure that I'm having intentional conversations with everyone because I don't expect them to stay in their job forever. Like it's almost like you I think a lot of industries you might ha- play a game of career chicken where it's like who talks about the fact that somebody might leave first? Is it the employee or the employer? Hmm. Um, so I think you do owe your boss at some point to make sure that they're aware of your kind of intentions of maybe doing something longer term. But you need to be careful when you do that because some bosses might take that directly and impact kind of how they might treat you. I hope, and I hope I'm the type of boss, but I hope you have the type of boss where that wouldn't be the case. Um, But bottom line is you don't know the company. You owe your manager, the person that's kind of sticking their neck out for you to get that promotion. You don't owe the the bigger company. Like, that's why we live in a capitalist society is that ultimately, like, you know. I like the idea that that's why. Well, but, but I guess, like, I think people make it a really personal investment in a company where they feel guilty that they yeah. can't leave when they really want something better. Yeah. And that, frankly, could be better for the company, too, for them eventually to kind of hire somebody, put somebody in your role that is really excited about staying in finance. But, yeah. 
I would say the only reason not to take this promotion would be if you thought the workload would be so intense that you would not be able to do it and take classes at the same time. But it doesn't sound like that's the case. It sounds like, especially with the increased flexibility, you would be more easily able to do that. And a lot of people work and go to school at the same time. I'm not saying we should all do it. It sounds really exhausting, but it is not abnormal. It's not so weird that you would have to disclose to your boss. Um, Yeah, if you plan on sticking around for another two years, that is a perfectly... That's plenty of time. Um, You are not doing anything like sneaky or that you shouldn't. Um, What you do outside of work uh, is your business and not your bosses. You don't owe them a conversation about your dream of becoming a social worker. Uh, And, you know, two years from now, if you're ready to move on, you can just say, I want to put in my two weeks notice. Uh, I've accepted a job elsewhere. If you're especially close with your boss, you might share, oh, I'm going to be working as a social worker. You don't have to do that at all. you can just quit your job for what it's worth. Because I, I got another question about that this morning that was somebody who was actually doing a much shorter window. They were um, like they'd been unemployed after getting laid off for about two months and they were being offered a job they kind of knew was going to be a pretty bad job and they wouldn't stay at for very long. But they really wanted the health insurance and they needed it. And they were like, what if I'm only there for like six months? Um, and my thought was just like, you need health insurance. I don't really care about this company. I care about you getting health insurance. Also, once I quit a job three weeks in, and then I realized that's not something you should give advice based off of the strength of that anecdote. That was a terrible thing to have done, but it worked out fine. Well, and also there's something about just making that call early. You had a gut sense that it wasn't the right fit. Yeah, I did. And I also got a much, much, much better offer. Um, And it was the sort of thing that when I told them, they were like, oh, yeah, we get it. I mean, it's very inconvenient for us, but we would do the same thing. Like, it sucks, and it's definitely not something that I would recommend people make a habit of. If you have a lot of, like, really short-term things on your resume, it eventually turns into something you have to explain, and it, it can be difficult. But um, if you take this job and you work at it well for two years and then you go become a social worker, like, that's a success story. That's not that's not something you have to explain away or apologize for. Like, that's awesome. Well done. Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to a competitor or something like that. And even if you were, people go to competitors all the time. Yeah. People leave jobs after two years. That's super normal. What you are contemplating is incredibly normal. Um, and the only reason you need to give when you eventually leave your job is, I am leaving this job. <laughs> like, that's all you have to say. <laughs> I would love to have received, like, your your notice or see that conversation. I'm, I, like, very Johnny Tight Lips when it comes to leaving a job. Did you have a microphone that you just dropped as well? I, no, I just was like, I would like to give my two weeks notice. I have accepted another opportunity. You've been a great boss. Thank you so much. And then I was like, here's the cake I would like at my farewell party. I don't think I demanded a cake immediately, but I did get a cake. Everyone got a cake there. What kind of cake? I think it was carrot. Nice. Which I love. We do we do birthday cake celebrations. Mm-hmm. And I always think of that scene from the movie Office Space where they're all passing around cake and singing happy birthday with like the most monotone droney voice. And I always feel bad like I'm the manager that's now doing that with my team to celebrate people's birthdays. I think this really illustrates the old millennial, young millennial divide because I always think of Maria Bamford's um, bit about cake in the office where she talks about being a temp and how she could hear the sounds of like people's plastic forks scraping against paper plates as they ate all the cake. But because she was never on the email like list, she never knew about it because the temp is always just there for a few days. And she does this great like, temp want cake? Like little voice of how sad it was and like mixing together like packets of hot cocoa and like non-dairy creamer and trying to microwave them into a version of cake. 
That's amazing. It's also very good. I love that there's now delineation between young millennial and old millennial. Oh, it's a whole thing. Someone did a whole thing about it. I heard uh, they're using almost they're using hip hop to describe it, where Drake is old millennial and Chance the Rapper is young millennial. Sure, yeah, whatever delineations you want to throw, like young millennials own more lizards, old millennials are afraid of bees. There's something. There's always something. Someone's mad about something. Should we get to the last question? Yes, please. All right. I'll read it. Thank you. Dear Prudence, I am a recent college graduate, and throughout college, I worked the same part-time job in retail. After graduation, I became a full-time employee and was promoted from cashier to lower management. I love my job. The people I work with are great. I get full benefits, including health insurance, paid vacation, and a 401k. I'm also able to save about 40% of my take-home pay. The problem is that my family keeps asking me when I'm going to get a, quote, real job that utilizes my degree more, and they're openly derisive about my work. I'm tired of defending my job to them. I'm fully self-sufficient, so I feel their opinions are unwarranted. I've tried to talk to them before about how hurtful it is that they invalidate my work, but they usually just laugh at me. How can I get them to take me seriously and stop mocking the job I've chosen? Has anyone ever mocked the job you've chosen? I I think I've had to explain. Yeah, my, my 90-year-old grandfather still doesn't understand or believe that the cloud is a technology phenomenon that's going to work. So he's the person who always – he's the person who, who criticizes like, hey, when are you going to work for a real company, a real job? And I work for like a publicly traded like – Decent sized tech company, but he's like, What about Boeing? That's a real company. <laughs> um, so I have had that, um, not to this degree. And you know, I, I was thinking about this where, like, what is the definition of a real job? I mean, for a recent graduate to have full benefits, health care, paid vacation, 401k, and also to be pocketing a ton of money, like. To me, I'd argue that's that's a real job no, from my like, own definition. What kind of family, how comfortable must they be that that's the kind of job that everyone's like, Psh, that's made up. Like, you guys, you must come from a long line of very fortunate, well-off people. Uh, what? Assholes. Yeah. I mean, I, I can I get that there's like an obsessive comparison disorder that like recent grads and even parents can have, like wanting their kids to have like a, a really high power, high paying job. Or like on a career track like that, but also like you also mentioned how much you you like the people that you work with and you're getting all of those other benefits. Like, yeah, it could be hard if you were just eking out a living or if you didn't really like the people that you worked with, but you've got everything that you need for a real job to be able to be like a fulfilled, contributing citizen of- I mean, you got a job after graduation. Like as somebody who graduated college in 2009, that is- a miracle. I mean, I have a job now, obviously. I'm doing fine. But like uh, most of the people I knew after college were desperately looking for work. And like a lot of people had to like really struggle to try to make ends meet because there were no full-time jobs for recent graduates. And like that your family is being so dismissive of this is just, man, what a bummer. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I could understand if they wanted to have a conversation about, hey, you just got this degree do you ever think that it will be, like, applicable to your career? How do you think about that? But that's not the conversation they're trying to have with you, right? They're just being jerks. Um, I, I, to, to me, the solution to this is uh, I, I think you can absolutely kind of draw a line when it comes to mocking the job you've chosen, uh, but to sort of let go of the hope of them taking you seriously. Like, 
who cares? They're clearly being unreasonable. And I think if you stop trying to kind of chase that gold ring of getting your parents to approve of your choice, you will feel a lot better. And I think you're already partway there, right? Like you already know that you're self-sufficient. You 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 know that their input doesn't really affect your choices. Um, so I, like I think just having kind of a stock response of I love my work, I get great benefits, and I'm saving 40% of my income. If you can think of another job that will do that, uh, you know, I'd be interested. No, that kind of opens you up to them, like, trying to come up with other jobs. Yeah, just say, like, I love my job. Uh, I'm not sure why you feel like this is not enough, but, you know, drop it. Like, that was maybe the worst off-the-cuff, like, response I've ever tried to compose for someone else, by the way. It just fell apart by it, the end. It worked. And and speaking of re- old millennial and young millennial, like, there's always talk about how hard it can be for kind of this generation to get those first jobs. Like, I think you can contrast that and be like, hey, like, mom and dad, like, it's hard for people that have recently graduated. Look at all that I do have. Like, and even ask, like, what is your definition of a real job? I think I freaking have that, and I really enjoy this. Um, And, like, if you can have that conversation about why and what is a a real job to you, and then explain to them how this actually fits into what you want— and kind of what 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 matters to you career wise, and that it's fulfilling. Like, good on you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's just unfortunate, and I think it's good on you too for getting promoted up through that. Like, that's a great sign. Yeah, yeah. It says something about like the fact that the people who saw you working with them through college were like, "We want more of this." That's that's fabulous. Um, so yeah, I think that kind of combination of like, uh, if they invalidate it bummer for them like too bad that they don't get how great your job is um and to kind of just say like to just sort of cheerfully don't even like defend it just like i love my job which is not really an argument it's just a statement of your feelings um because if you get kind of lost in the weeds of but i get this from my job and i get that from my job like if they've just decided it's a bad job no matter what they will always have something to come back at you with so i don't think um it, it sounds like you've already kind of explained what you love about the job so don't get caught up in that too much i think just focus on i love my job i get great benefits i'm really happy um let's change the subject uh and to just really like make that be your kind of theme song and you know if if they really don't drop it you can always just say like hey i'm gonna head out um and like let's talk sometime when you want to talk about something else yeah i, I would say Having that conversation is going to be really worth it. I'd also say that what you're learning in this retail job is going to be super applicable to anything else that you might want to do. You're learning a lot of people skills. You're dealing with a lot of um, you're, you're growing in your career. You're learning new things. Like those are all really good things that can be applicable in other things. And if that is something longer term that you want to do, like maybe you can say like, hey, I really enjoy this now. I have a longer term vision for something around here. That can maybe be a helpful way for them to bridge that that gap in this time period where you're working in this retail job. And I'm going to take a different tact, Mallory. Mm-hmm. Do it. But I do believe that Wayne Gretzky is right. He says, skate where the puck is going. Oh, my God. And I do just worry um, about the retail industry. And I know that there's been talk about e-commerce and all that good stuff for a long time. But there is a lot of hard data around the decline of retail jobs over this last couple of years. So something to just be mindful of. Um, Always have a backup strategy. If this industry never exists. Yeah. 
Wow. Well, but I don't if, think that I don't think that's. Can't happen. believe Wayne Gretzky is like talking shit about the retail employees in the world. That's <laughs> no, really cruel. But, but Wayne. the spirit is you got to go where you no, got to go great. where the industry is. You got to go where the jobs, where the future is. Sure. I, um, I mean, I don't know what this specific company they're working at is like, and um, all industries are a little shaky, anyways. Um, that's probably not true, but it's how I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I would just say too, there's something to be said for, and this is less like long-term career advice, which I'm, I'm sure that that's genuinely helpful. Um, when, when we were little, Zach, sometimes we would ask dad like a series of questions. And, and at a certain point, it became less about like, we want to know the answer and more just like, can we stump dad? Can we prove that he doesn't actually know why the sky is blue or whatever? And we would just get to a point where he would kind of say, you know what, it would be a world record, which was sort of like his loving way of saying like, it is impossible to answer all of your questions. And I am lovingly choosing to disengage. And I think there's something to be said for that strategy at a certain point. If they just keep asking you, when are you going to get a real job to just go with probably never, Um, which is not the same thing as like slinging their shit right back at them or getting really shirty with them. It's just this sort of like loving disengagement of just like "Eh, probably never. I'll probably always be a bum Um, to just sort of like opt out. Like if they're just going to keep asking you the same question, just give them a boring kind of uninterested answer like oh never um there's not a lot they can do with that and then if they continue to kind of like sniff around you and say but this and this and this you can just sort of cheerfully say you're probably right i'll probably be miserable is there more pizza um and like just like you've got it all right like you've got the good job you've got the 401k you're socking away 40 percent of your savings every month and someday when they all need to go into a home you can just laugh and laugh and laugh and say i'm spending this money on buying a diamond yacht for myself and i hope you go to one of those homes where there's no windows yeah 401k is awesome yeah good for you Mm -hmm. zachy thank you again so very much i'm so glad that you came and uh Please come back on the show sometime. This has been so much fun. I'd be thrilled. And please help me put more pressure on Johnny now that he is the only outstanding family member well, not to appear on the I was going to say, was Johnny, is Johnny the person who's walking around his office with bare feet and oh eating at his desk? Because that, that could be him. sounds 100% like something Johnny would do. Although the, the like, coughing directly on the keyboard, I think Johnny would not do. But yeah, you know what? I would like to take this moment to officially call out John C. Orberg III, my little brother, who is a physicist. At Stan, not Stanford. What's that other school? UC Santa Cruz. That's the one. Thank you. I, I don't know what school he Go goes banana to. Go banana slugs. Go banana slugs. I want to call him out. Um, he is a, an idler, a trifler, and a non-producer. He refuses to help family members in times of need. He does not listen to the show. He will never hear this. Johnny, come on the show, and afterwards, I will buy you lunch, and and drive you back to Santa Cruz, unless you already have your car with you. I love you very much, and I just want to hang out with you, Zach. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mal. Thanks. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. 